is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing original motion picture soundtracks. Since sound became a part of motion pictures, music has formed the second half of many of our favorite movies. When used inexpertly, it feels like a cheap emotional cue or it jars us out of the narrative. But when music is used with real taste and skill, it adds something wonderful to the finished product. It deepens the tone and enriches the character of what we in the audience experience for the first time in front of a screen. But it wasn't until the 1950s and 60s that we really started to see theme songs developed for specific movies, uh, mainly to create a radio tie-in for that movie. And as a piece of marketing, that was a pretty powerful evolution. And that's only continued into the modern day. I think any modern moviegoer can name at least a few mega hit songs that have only appeared in the end credits of a blockbuster. But those songs would become inescapable in their campaign to burn a movie deep into our cultural muscle memory. I mean, after all, that's where the real money is. But thus was born the movie soundtrack. Those songs developed independently of the movies they ultimately appear in, typically having been curated into a movie's audio identity or crafted as parallel content. Now, these are not the score, the often instrumental music developed specifically for movies in which they appear. Scores are awesome. And honestly, the lines between soundtracks and scores can get a little fuzzy, uh, especially when you consider things like musicals. But essentially what we're talking about today are those collections of third-party songs incorporated into a movie to give it a musical identity. And the reason why we're talking about soundtracks is because they can be so, so good. Sometimes they're the product of musically inclined directors who are fluent in both sight and sound. Sometimes they're the product of terrific music directors who know how to find the right music for the right mood for the right moment. Sometimes they capture the mood of an entire era, past or present. Sometimes they revive sounds we have long forgotten. Sometimes they come together in strange ways to produce a magical effect that transcends the movie itself and takes on its own emotional weight. And sometimes, frankly, they're just way better than the movies that created them. However they get made, the very best movie soundtracks, and there is no small number of them, are an art form unto themselves. And frankly, they never seem to get the credit they deserve, perhaps because they are so secondary in nature. But that's okay. This episode, we're giving our favorite soundtracks some love because they definitely deserve it. With me today is Santa Clara Youth Outreach Director, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Pleased to meet you. Big, <laughs> Big Kahuna Burger Director of Marketing, Tom Hespos. Heidi ho <laughs> And Cook County Assessor, Joe Pace. I hate Illinois Nazis. <laughs> Who doesn't? Everyone, welcome. So, Joe, when we decided upon this topic, you instantly sounded off that you knew totally what your choice would be for your favorite original motion picture soundtrack. We mentioned it, and you're like, I know what I'm going to choose. And so let's just get into your movie soundtrack moment of truth right off the bat. What's the movie? What's the soundtrack? Why do you love it so much? How do you see this relative to the movie from which it came? And what's your moment of truth that comes out of it all? I probably cheated a little, to be perfectly honest. The movie that I chose and the soundtrack that I chose is, is the Blues Brothers, quite possibly one of the, the greatest entries into American cinema in the last hundred years. 1980, really, I think if we're, if we're looking at all of the movies that came out of uh, SNL sketch comedy, it's the only one that actually made a movie greater than the original sketch that it came out of. Growing up, this was one of my favorite movies. I love the movie. I, I think it's hilarious. I think it's um, an absolute, in some ways, train wreck of a movie that um, does does everything wrong. The, the the oral history around this, the making of this movie, is is absolutely legendary. That um, Belushi and Aykroyd and all the other talent that wasn't John Landis, all the other talent that's involved in this movie, and they would literally go and try to find Belushi uh, when it was time for taping in Chicago, and they would find him in some dive bar at you know ten o'clock in the morning. You know, playing the blues with a, a bunch of African-American guys from the neighborhood. I mean, and, and just the fact that this movie actually got made and nobody died during the making of it is, is sort of impressive in and of itself. It's almost impossible to divorce the music from the film. It is in a lot of ways probably closer to a musical, mm. which may or may not truly disqualify it from this conversation, but the soundtrack is listed as a soundtrack, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use it because it is far and away my favorite soundtrack of any, of any film. Um, to the point that in high school, my best friend were such devotees of this film. We watched it probably 10 times in high school and we would actually arrange the songs for the instruments we played. He played trumpet and I played tuba. 
he's tall and skinny. I'm a shorter, stouter dude. So you figure out who played who. Uh, and it probably made more sense for, for Jake to play the, the tuba and Elwood to play the trumpet anyway. But we would, we would arrange Peter Gunn. We would arrange Chicago Katie. We would arrange all of you. Give me some love. All of these songs and more, you go, because there's an entire universe of Blues Brothers music outside of the soundtrack. You go to the briefcase full of blues, and there's just so much. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, we would actually go down to the beach and we would dress in the parts. We would take our instruments and we would play going up and down the boardwalk. Listen, you haven't lived until you've been introduced at a busy beach by a Pee Wee Herman impersonator in full costume. And you're in full costume as the Blues Brothers. And then you play before, you know, <laughs> an adoring crowd of, of people who don't know quite what's going on. And these high school kids are playing the jailhouse rock in, in their, uh, you know, with tuba and trumpet. The music from this introduced me to an entire culture that I knew nothing about. Because one of the brilliant things about this, this movie and the soundtrack is that it blends together different cultures. It blends together the African-American traditions of John Lee Hooker and Cab Calloway. Mm-hmm. And then with the, some, of the, some of the, you know, the, you know, the white guys, the stuff that Elvis was singing, the stuff that other people were, were doing. Sam and Dave, I mean, it, it brings together a lot of the roots of what we consider rock and roll, what we consider pop music. These were street performers. I got Aretha Franklin. You've got James Brown. You've got, I mean... This is, this is an absolute melange of musical styles under the umbrella of blues. And as a suburban white kid, I did not identify with any of it, but I fell in love with all of it. Mm. And to this day, I put the soundtrack on and I am transported to being in high school and doing that fun stuff. I can listen to this every single day and never ever go, oh, I have to skip that song. I'm tired of this. I don't want to listen. From She Caught the Katie all the way through to Jailhouse Rock, the entire soundtrack to me is brilliant. The entire soundtrack is listenable, and it is something that will always be part of the soundtrack of my own life. For you, this is all killer, no filler, but is there one particular aspect of it that really connects you to the movie or really speaks to you in in an especially deep way? Yeah, I mean, if you go to the movie and at the part where they're doing the concert at Lake Wazipamani (laughs) and the Palace Hotel Ballroom, and there's a scene in which it's giving me some loving and... You know, Elwood goes out and he does the introduction. Everybody knows the famous introduction, right? When he talks about, you know, everybody needs somebody to love. It's such a great right? spoken he, he, introduction. Probably, oh my God, Probably right? my favorite spoken introduction of any song I've ever listened to. It's, it's like a full... <laughs> everybody needs somebody. Dude, it's like, it's seriously, it's like 33% of the song. <laughs> it's so good. My Elwood was one of my best men at my, at my wedding and did that at my wedding. He came out with the band. We had a live band. And he did the introduction for them. Just, uh, whatever. That is anyway. so great, man. So, and, then we, and then we did the dance that they do with the leg out to the side, leg out to the side. Right? Like, and it was, it was, you know, and, and awesome. so for me, when they come out, people don't realize, and, I, and I, meant, I wanted to mention this briefly, that Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi were such incredibly talented performers. Yeah. They, they, were not, they were not pretending. They were not lip syncing. They were not dilettantes performing these songs. They had chops. And they actually yeah. performed these songs. And the fact that Belushi could, I mean, this guy, the charisma he exuded went on stage as Jake Blues. And then it's so special yeah. to me. So when they come out and they're, they're at the, everyone's waiting. Yeah, we want the show. We want the show. And, you know, Cap Calloway comes out and does this beautiful Minnie Moocher thing to, to, to buy time. But when they come out, you know, he does that introduction. And then they do that dance. Yeah. And then they dance with each other. And it's the long, extended horn performance that goes on as they escape. I, I, that to me might be my favorite five minutes of any movie that's ever been. It's just pure joy. I mean, it is just pure, it's just pure joy. And, you know, you really get it when you listen to the soundtrack. I mean, you mentioned how you really can't divorce the movie from the soundtrack. This is one of the rare soundtracks. You can almost divorce the movie from the soundtrack rather than divorce the soundtrack from the movie. If the movie was blinked out of existence, but the soundtrack remained, you would still have this Titanic album. Yeah, it's so, so good. It's just so exuberant. Like the whole thing is so exuberant. And there's like not, there's not an inauthentic note in the whole thing. And that's what I I really love about it. And all of the actors, the the Blues Brothers band, these are, these are significant musicians. Yeah. Okay. These are not like actors pretending to play guitar, actors (laughs) pretending to play trombone. These are legitimate musicians who do the lines and do everything else. And so when they play, they're really playing and they are, Reckon. I mean, they're getting it done. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, there's almost like an Andy Kaufman level blurring of lines between Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi 
and the Blues Brothers themselves. I mean, like, it's hard to tell where they stop and begin because they so went down this blues rabbit hole and they just fell in love with it. And this movie was born out of that love. And you mentioned, you know, well, maybe this soundtrack isn't exactly along the lines of the rules we set out for this episode. But, you know, the reason why I had no problem with it, apart from the fact that I, you know, we don't do this podcast to <laughs> whipsaw each other over rules, but the reality is this. If they never made a movie, these guys probably still would have done a second album very close to what we got in the soundtrack anyway. You know, Briefcase Full of Blues came out two years earlier. It was, by my reading anyway, actually one of the most successful blues records ever published, which is kind of a knockout to me. And it's a great album. It's not long, but boy, I think sizzles. You know, they loved what they were doing. And they definitely had more to give as far as this whole thing went. Like you said, because they weren't playing the Blues Brothers. They were kind of really were the Blues Brothers. There's a part of their hard drive which partitioned forever as Blues Brothers, right? That's just who they They went and performed. Yeah. They went out and performed. Yeah. They did a tour for God's sake. You know, it's funny. Years and years later, I went to a live taping of the David Letterman show. And Dan Aykroyd was not the musical guest, but he was just like a guest on the show. Um, but he was opening up another House of Blues. And so this got him just to perform right then and there. He just gets up and starts performing with the band, has a harmonica and just starts blowing on that thing. And I was like, man, gosh, 25 years after the Blues Brothers came out and this guy still- You wouldn't think Ray Stantz had it in him. Right? Oh, dude was just rocking it. I'm like, man, so, so good. I mean, the love they have for this music runs so deep and it's evident in the soundtrack. And that's why it's so, gosh, it's so much fun to listen to. I was listening to this uh, soundtrack, Bill, at the same time that you introduced me to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I, I believe I had them on a cassette, one on one side, the other you know, on side B. And, and uh, I would back, back and forth listen to them. And the soundtrack actually, in a way, kind of changed my life and musical taste. I mean, I, I, uh, I liked classic rock and stuff, which is, of course, blues-based, mm. but... This was like my first kick to say, hey, that's what all this comes from. And yeah, I started getting more into Roots music and, mm -hmm. you know, through freaking Dan Aykroyd and Chuck <laughs> Lucci. What the heck? Yeah. Yeah. So Derek Eisenhart, who does the stalwart editing job on this podcast and is a very longstanding, very dear friend of mine. He has been the guy who introduced me to a number of things I just really enjoy in the whole pop culture universe. And he introduced me to the Blues Brothers and to the album Briefcase of Blues. Because I remember we were in high school and he was talking about the Blues Brothers. I'm like, oh, the skit, right? And he goes, well, yeah, but it's more than that. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, they did, they did an album. I'm like, they did an album? And he goes, yeah you haven't heard it i'm like no like why would i and he goes you're an idiot come here and he's just like he, he places a copy in my hand he goes listen to it tonight <laughs> i was like okay and then i listened to the soundtrack you know right after that and it was transformative like because i you know this soundtrack and and other stuff around it was my introduction to a whole nother level of music that i would never have seen otherwise and I really loved it. And I got to appreciate the other, other music I listened to more because I could appreciate this and the well that this goes to. And it's such a deep well. Exactly. And I think one of the things I've always really appreciated about the movie and about the soundtrack is that they bring in these absolute legends, these absolute titans to play on the soundtrack. There's a whole soundtrack's worth of songs that aren't even in the soundtrack, but are in the movie. Green onions. Dude, John Lee. And Sam and Dave. Boom, boom, boom. John Lee Hooker, right? They just give him a scene. He's just sitting on a step playing it. Why? Because street performer. Street performer, because they love him and they brought him in. And like the it's so good. The reverence, though, is evident. Shake a tail feather, which by the way, is one of the most get up and dance songs ever made. It's just that song is infectious. It's so freaking good. Um, you know, and they're singing back up to Ray Charles. Ray Charles, for Ray Charles just goes nuts. You know, it's an honor for them to back up Ray Charles, right? These guys are clearly putting themselves at the feet of the altar with all these guests, and it never feels like it's an appropriation. It always feels like it's it's no, deep reverence. No, it's deep reverence. They, they absolutely yield. They absolutely they, they they amplify voices, right? Yeah, that, I mean that's what they do. And go to the scene where they're sitting at the Soul Food Cafe, and Aretha Franklin is doing respect. They are sitting on the chairs watching her, just kind of like, <laughs> "You've got to be kidding me!" This is like, yeah. you know. I don't think you can find another gathering of talent. If you're talking about Cab Calloway, Aretha Franklin, John Lee Hooker, James Brown, Ray Charles, I mean, this is Olympus. It really is. This stuff. This is a, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I mean. <laughs> I've been in a lot of like little groups and stuff like that all through like high school, college and after. And I know that on three different occasions, joining three different bands, 
I have been handed cassettes of the Blues Brothers soundtrack <laughs> and been told you need to learn, you know, start with Sweet Home Chicago and go through every... <laughs> get, get them all. On the list. Yeah. You need to yeah. get them all. Like, there's that inevitable, you know, like when you join the band, here's all the covers. And, and everything we all, else we do is based on it anyway. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I will say that just to put the button on it and then we'll move on. But in 1996, when we were just finished our junior year in college, Nate and I drove out to Chicago and we went to the Cook County Assessor's Office in Chicago. Did you? And we went to Lower Wacker Drive. And, we, and so we go into the, we, we, we did the full thing. We did the full pilgrimage. And we went into the, to the Cook County Assessor's office, went looking for the Cook County Assessor. And by the way, these people are like, yeah, okay, right? Another one. They're like, you got to be kidding me with this. This is like half of what I do during the day is to fend you people off. But we've got a picture with the Cook County Assessor in front of the seal of Cook County yeah. in his office. But, that's so good. <laughs> I adore that. That's, that's fandom that's right there. I love it. <laughs> that's so good. No, no, that's a, that stuff is great, yes. though. It's, it's, so, it's so fantastic. Glorious. I, I could do nothing but salute it. All right, we'll move on to the next one. That'll bring me up. <laughs> my original motion picture soundtrack, Moment of Truth, comes from one of my all-time favorite movies, from one of my all-time favorite directors. It is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is just an extraordinarily fun John Hughes movie. It's from 1986. The movie chronicles the efforts of Ferris Bueller, played by Matthew Broderick, who is this high school senior, chaotic neutral kind of <laughs> kind of kid. Serial truant, decides to blow off school one last time before high school ends, so he recruits his girlfriend Sloan. He busts his hypochondriac friend Cameron out of home. They go, they rip off Cameron's dad's uh, car, drive into, the, into Chicago and have, seriously, the best day ever. While Ferris's sister is trying to get him busted, Dean's students, Rooney is trying to get him busted. So it's kind of this fun caper movie, but it's also, it is also very much a John Hughes movie. Hughes spoke fluent teenager. He wasn't an adult trying to think how teenagers felt like he really natively understood what it meant to be a teenager coming of age during the 80s. He was like a real Gen X kind of touchstone and really understood what it felt like to be a kid during that time. Even when put through the lens of Hollywood fantasy, there was still just this credibility to it that he understood what the audience was thinking more than most other filmmakers making similar content. He never made a movie like he was somehow sneering or laughing at his audience. He was one of us. So I've always enjoyed his movies quite a lot, but this one I really particularly enjoyed. And the soundtrack is such a huge part of it. And, and I just adored it because, you know, as they go through their day and they do all these fun things in the city, you know, they go see a Cubs game. They go to the Sears tower. I think they take the river tour at one point. They go to a fancy restaurant. They go to the Chicago Institute of art and do all this crazy stuff. And a lot of these episodes are punctuated by a particular song. And this soundtrack is really weird. It is, among other things, just a massive salvo of really cool new wave and pop music that a square like me simply did not have access to back in the day, right? So I love this music. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really love this soundtrack. I've got to get it. And I searched fruitlessly for like 30 years for this darn thing, only to realize that, well, you can't find it because it doesn't exist. They, they strangely, this is the one soundtrack John Hughes never released because he felt that the songs were so all over the place that no one would actually want a soundtrack of it. For me, it's an astonishing misfire from Hughes. Like, dude, how could you think that? How could you possibly think that about, I, yes, the, the selection is crazy, but dude, I want it. Didn't didn't <laughs> Twist and Shout hit like number one or number two based on this movie? Yes, based on this movie, Twist and Shout actually had a revival. It was it was huge. Even though the version has a brass band overlay because it's a marching band, which apparently Paul McCartney was really unhappy about, and John Hughes is like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, didn't mean to offend Paul McCartney. <laughs> but the soundtrack, it was a unicorn. I looked fruitlessly to find it forever, and eventually in 2016. Well, let me back up. There actually was a limited edition of this, like the John Hughes fan club, I guess, made their own little soundtrack and they made like their own like little mixtapes and sent it out to people. But they're so expensive. They just did. A, I mean, those things are probably impossible to find. But in 2016, uh, La La Land Records finally went, OK, we will produce a limited run of the Ferris Bueller's Day Off soundtrack. And it was really cool. Part of the problem with it is that I always hated, especially back in the day, you get a soundtrack because you really want a particular song from a movie you just love, right? And you didn't always know if a song was new, you're like, mm, I can't tell by the credits which song I love just by looking at the names of them. So you buy the soundtrack hoping it's there 
And then you realize, oh, no, wait a minute. Like not every song in the movie made it to the soundtrack, right? And that's what happened with the La La Land version. It's great, but it doesn't have exactly everything. And so uh, for that, there's lots of places you can go to find it. But like YouTube has got all kinds of curated soundtrack lists. And that's where for years I had actually listened to the soundtrack on YouTube because I couldn't buy a copy. The songs, there's a lot of them here, but they each fit a particular moment. Like where they are in the movie, they fit that moment so perfectly. Beat City by the Flower Pot Men is a song playing when they're driving into the city, right? And it's just this great instant high speed, like let's get the hell out of Dodge kind of song. It just fits that moment so perfectly. Oh Yeah by Yellow, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, that song has become a cue. This movie made that song. It's become like, for an entire generation, it's become the audio cue for just avarice itself, right? <laughs> like, you know, all you got to do is play that initial little electro drum roll and then, <clears throat> oh yeah. And you already have set the scene, right? It is, <laughs> you are lusting after something you probably shouldn't be lusting after, right? It's just, it's so, it's so perfect. There's a song at the end of it called March of the Swivelheads, which is just this crazy, frenetic, ska kind of oriented. It's the, the music they play when Ferris is running Hell's Bells through backyards, trying to get home in time before he gets busted. I just love it. But the song for me, that is the moment of truth. It, it's a song that speaks to me very, very, very deeply. I love this song so much. This is actually the song that launched the Moments of Truth blog and this podcast. It, it got me thinking about why do I love this moment? so much why does it matter to me it's a song called please 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 let me get what i want so that song is a smith song but what appe- <laughs> right but what appears in the movie is not the smith's version it's a cover of a dream academy, the dream academy yeah. right who do another song in this soundtrack which is also delightful but this one it's almost ethereal in its quality and what appears in the movie is actually an instrumental version of it and it happens at this really key part in the movie where our heroes have had this crazy day they're just doing so much and they kind of stop for a quiet moment and they go to the art museum and this song plays during this montage as they are all kind of doing their thing walking through the museum they're not running they're just stopping to to really enjoy life at a slower pace and really take things in and you know as the song goes on we see our our characters split and you know ferris and his girlfriend sloan sneak off to a beautifully backlit corner so they can have a romantic kiss and you know super stressed out cameron is there sort of looking around and the camera kind of starts popping back and forth between cameron and this piece of art he's looking at and you get closer and closer and closer and the song is so achingly beautiful and for me it's a very bittersweet moment in the movie i don't know if he meant it to be like that but for me in that moment I get the sense that that's when, for all of their capering about, for all their mischief, for all their fun, this is the time when Ferris and Sloan and Cameron all realize that, you know, they've had a great day, but every day has to end. And just like this day has to end, the time in high school has to end and, and adolescence has to end. They are somehow aware that they only have so much time to do the things they want to do. And eventually the time will come where they may not be as close together as they once were. And it happens to everybody. Right. And it's just this little moment where you get the sense they're they're all kind of realizing it before they jump back into the final act of kind of fun and mayhem. Everybody, when they grow up, has that moment where they finally make, they take that first step between adolescence and adulthood. And they realize that from this point on, things are going to be a little bit different. And like, I remember very much a moment in the summer after I graduated from high school, when it was the last time I was with my extended group of high school friends. It was like, a Ferris Bueller perfect night out. We had all gotten together. We had all seen a movie. We'd all done these things. And like the extended group, like the entire extended group got together. It was like more than a dozen of us. And we finally all just retired to this cool roadside kind of diner down by the river. And we're all just hanging out on the lawn, just eating food, talking. And I remember I just looked back and it struck me like a thunderbolt, like this moment will never happen again because we are not going to be these kids anymore. And it was true, you know, um, it's not like the time that happens after that is less. I mean, in many ways, it's been more. It's been wonderful. But, you know, you come across these little moments where you cross a threshold in your life and you realize this is a before and after moment. And then that one spoke very deeply to me. So whenever I hear, please, 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 let me get what I want, especially the, the version I hear in Ferris Bueller's, I tear up because I just, it, it is, it's a beautiful scene on its own. But for me, it spoke very deeply to me, frankly, from a movie that I did not expect <laughs> to have anything deep to say to me, <laughs> you know, it's some Ferris Bueller's day off. I mean, come on. It's supposed to be about a kid cutting school. What's it doing this to me for? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, and it just, it just, I just fall apart. I have no immunity to it. So that's my moment of truth from Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> 
But that's brilliant, Bill. I mean, you're talking about the moment we've all experienced, right? Which is, is what Ferris is experiencing. They talk about it openly in the film. Yeah. They talk about the fact that like, oh, he will go off to college and we'll separate and this won't happen. Like Ferris is very aware of what you're talking about. Yeah. As you mentioned, we've all had those experiences. I, I can remember very vividly after you know high school, at the end of high school, we had project graduation. After graduation, everyone goes out on the boat on Lake Winnipesaukee. And then uh, we're all together that night. And then the boat docks and we drive back in. And I remember sitting in the parking lot behind the high school and I'm like, wow, this is, it's over. Mm -hmm. It's done. Yeah. And, and exactly what you're talking about. And it didn't have a soundtrack for me, but it was, I, I remember very much like a visceral reaction to that moment. Yeah. And we all have that. And yeah. to have a, a John Hughes, John Hughes did that very well. He did. Actually. To say that, that, to say that you don't expect it coming out of that movie, I think gives short shrift to what Hughes was best at, which was that sense of the transitory, yeah. ephemeral nature of adolescence and the fact that, what seems so huge to us is is going to go away yeah. and and uh, all of his movies that was if there was any theme to the john hughes movie right it was the passing of of what was important to us when we were young and and and, and the transitory nature of youth yeah and so um, he hits that at ferris bueller unexpectedly hard i think i think you're right to mention. absolutely that is the central theme that movie is weirdly tolkien-esque in it, its sense of loss and mm -hmm. and weirdly nostalgic backward looking for high school students you know it, it's hughes putting our feelings onto these high school characters he's making them adults yeah. in ways they really weren't you know they were big kids to me <laughs> yeah you're right though in the sense that like ferris is preternaturally aware of his own transition mm -hmm. he knows he knows he's very clear he mentions it over and over again, like, yes, he's unusually mature and all this other kinds of stuff, but he knows that he's about to move out of this king of high school thing. Well, I think it's no mistake, no coincidence that in the very next scene is when they all leave the museum and that's when they crash the Von Steuben's Day parade. Cameron, have you had a good day? He goes, eh, nothing good. He's like, what? And so Ferris gets up and gets on the float <laughs> to sing, right? He does a twist and shout. But before that, he does Don Shane. And lest we forget the lyrics in Don Shane. Though we go on our separate ways, still the memory stays. For always, my heart stays. Don Shane, thank you. I mean, he kind of puts a button on it right after that, but like I never caught it because I'm so like a big puddle after the museum scene. I'm like, oh, you know. And for me, it was a double whammy because also I got to tell you, in, in, in high school, I was not Ferris. I was Cameron. I mean, I, <laughs> I identified deeply with Cameron, <laughs> okay? Ask anybody I went to high school with and they would have been like, yeah, no, dude, you were Cameron, 100%. I mean, I felt added in a very big way <laughs> when I watched that movie. I never had like the Ferrari situation, of course, you know, and, and my father wasn't nearly as overbearing as, as Cameron's was, but I definitely felt that knowing enough of the world to be afraid of all of it, you know, and being so unwilling to, to enjoy any piece. It's the, even the stuff that's right there on the ground waiting for me. I needed Ferris Bueller's to come around and take me along with them a little bit. So I learned how to do it Who myself. was your Ferris? Did you, have a, did you have a Ferris? Oh, hell yeah. No, yeah. Well, well Derek was one of them. Derek and, and my other friend, Mike Keown. Those two guys. Let's not let Derek know that he was Ferris Bueller. That's probably not going to be. He good. knows it. Now, look, there was a small cadre of my friends who they would make a point of making sure I got dragged along to do fun stuff because otherwise I wouldn't do it myself. And they very much looked out for me. And I have to say, I owe them all an enormous debt of thanks. Those are the best friends. And you know what? They, are, they still are best friends. And again, when I think about that moment and that scene, both in the movie and in my life, I remember it with crystal and clarity. I remember who was there. I remember where they were sitting. I remember what they looked like. I remember who was dating who. I remember who was in love with who, but they did, the other one didn't know it. I remember who was going far away, who was staying close. Who was I? You were having the big chill. It, it, yeah, no, it was a thunderbolt kind of moment. Here are a couple of people I think I'm probably never going to see again. Here are some people I think I'm always going to see. Yeah, it was, that moment sticks with me because it landed so true. I do want to say, Bill, to your particular moment, uh, when I first went to the Art Institute in Chicago, you know, I stood back and I looked at that painting and I closed my eyes <laughs> and I moved a foot or two closer. I opened them. I did it again and again. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, since you've got the mic, I think your moment is up next. And why don't you walk us through your moment of truth and the movie it comes from and, and why it all matters to you. There's a lot of arguably great, darkly cool films out there, even excluding pure horror flicks. We've talked about some of them. The Matrix maybe is their king. Mm. There's The Crow, Dark City, Blade, and Underworld, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, 
most of Tarantino's of when it comes down to it, a lot of these movies really share striking soundtracks that are assembled from radio and club played music. It's not necessarily about big hits. You know, these aren't your big chills, for example, or your Mm -hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy soundtracks, right? They provide ambiance and tone for the film. And for me, The Lost Boys was the first one of these dark, cool, it's good to be bad films that I really can remember taking to or even seeing, honestly. And a huge part of it was the soundtrack. This is only a year after Ferris Bueller, by the way. And Lost Boys was directed by Joel Schumacher, who, you know, you can kick (laughs) as much as you want. (laughs) But he brought us with the Lost Boys the same year that he gave us Santa Moose Fire, which is another movie widely defined by its soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, But uh, he he gives us this youth-focused and Anne Rice-drenched vampire drama with a vague Peter Pan theme that could have done, oh, it could have been so much better. But (laughs) look, it's not a great movie. It isn't. But it is a cool one, though. It is a cool movie. And the soundtrack is just stellar if you've never seen the movie it's set in santa clara california it's a beach town sort of seedy beach town murder capital of the world these kids and their mother their single mother move to the town and they quickly meet a group of hoodlum vampires on the boardwalk the world of this boardwalk is so defined by its music every time we come back to the boardwalk it's a different tune but when we meet these vampires we hear the last track on the soundtrack, which is this like calliope carnival tune by Thomas Newman, who did the soundtrack. He's the guy that wrapped all this up. A few years later, Thomas Newman, who it turns out knows John Williams. They're like buddies. John Williams had him orchestrate the scene where Darth Vader dies in Return of the Jedi. A few years after Lost Boys, this guy is doing movies like The Player, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, Finding Nemo, Wally, a couple of Bond films. The guy's a big deal now. This is a little masterpiece, this this the soundtrack. The there's two in excess tracks on it. And look, in 1987, in excess was just at the height of their powers. They were coming off of uh Listen Like Thieves and the source of what's still my favorite in excess song. And this is. I couldn't get you one of my kind. <laughs> this is just before Kick yeah. was released. Yeah. So these are these songs on the soundtrack are throwaways. Yeah. They are they are extras, and and they're freaking good. Especially the first track. It's a cover of a, a 1968 Australian tune, <laughs> and it's just it's just blues based rock, and and yet it. It's in excess, so at that moment, it's just so unbelievably cool. This movie was defined by the soundtrack. It's so of its moment. That mid-80s period was lovely. Second song is Lost in the Shadows by Lou Graham, who, if you know him, was the lead singer of Foreigner. Right, Foreigner. Lost Boys! (laughs) Um, It's a terrible song. It really is. It's awful. (laughs) I listened to it again today, and I was like, wow, this is so much less than I remembered it. It's got this half note rhythm that's only relieved by, I mean, the most basic drum fills, yeah. an occasionally syncopated bass, and whatever Lou Reed is vocally doing with the rhythm. Like Lou Reed, if they'd got Lou Reed, it would have been. <laughs> but but it has it has such ambiance. I mean, it does. <laughs> it's used throughout the flick. It's one of two songs used throughout the flick. But the next track is uh, Roger Daltrey's fantastic cover of. Uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by Elton John. And it's immortal. It's lovely. My favorite Roger Daltrey piece, without a doubt. And Excess has another track. And then we get Echo and the Bunnymen's version of People Are Strange, which is, I don't know, for me, like the best soundtrack tune ever. It, it It's so good. Completely helps define this movie's alternative aesthetic with pretty leathered bikers with motley crew hair no beards and dirt bikes i bought it yeah oh yeah 
Santa. It was hard not to. It, it, it cast a, it cast a powerful spell, man. I was right there with oof. you. I really was. It's not a good movie. It's not a great movie for sure. Yeah. But uh, I, I bought in. This is only a year after Goonies, but it may even be Corey Feldman's finest moment. It is definitely Corey Haynes' <laughs> finest. Moment. Those True. both of them were pretty good in this flick. Yeah, and and I don't like either of them. It's not Bill S. Preston's finest moment. No, it is not for him but still it, you know it is the other notch on his belt <laughs> yes it is <laughs> and, and, and were you gonna have Kiefer sutherland as breakout star well I, I mean Probably, at this right? point Kiefer sutherland is is like he's like got a cottage industry of or maybe this is when he's beginning his cottage industry of dying and then coming back to life in movies <laughs> He was like Sean Bean before Sean Bean. Like I live, I live to die. Except he, he except he came back. back. I could talk about this movie without talking about Keeper Sutherland, and that would be a great disservice. But I I, I really dig the movie. Yeah, no, <laughs> and I particularly dig the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the, the the next song is uh, by a guy named Gerard Mann. It's called Cry Little Sister. It plays during all the vampire moments yeah. during the movie. It's the most atmospheric song I can even like tie to a soundtrack, I think. Yeah. His only ever song credit. And that was a big, big hit in 1987. Yeah. And it completely defines this movie. Then we see like they've got Eddie and the Cruisers playing on it, which is a made-up band from another movie that it turns out to just be John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. <laughs> The next track is one called I Still Believe, and it's immortal. Immortal. If you've ever seen Muscly Sax Guy as a meme, that's this is where <laughs> it's from. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is so cheesy. This guy is, you know, 220 pounds of muscle. He's he's got like oiled hair tied back into a curly mullet, and he's wearing like a a heavy, heavy chain around his neck and like, you know, van braces on his wrist. It, it's, he's playing the sax and singing and it's so committed and stupid and awesome that it will live forever. Forever. Stupid and awesome. Stupid. Like, is that not night the 1980s? If you had to sum up two words for an entire decade, stupid and awesome right? is the 1980s. Dude, you're, you're, not, you're not even scratching the surface on this one with that okay because honestly <laughs> if you had created a time capsule with only six things in the 1980s to explain just how exactly it was stupid and awesome you would have to put <laughs> tim capello to, in it tim capello would be in it exactly him and gyrating muscular shirtless sax guy yes that right there it's you have to you have to he's like that. Stupid and he's awesome. like he's like one of the avatars of the 1980s he really is i mean I, what a moment and uh there, there's one other tune uh this tune called beauty has her way by some sort of random new romantic band giving way to early goth really good tune and what a great soundtrack and the real killer is that the big like massacre scene where the vampires attack the the dudes out in the desert having a party it's over the run dmc and aerosmith version of walk this way and that it's not even on the soundtrack the question, Chris, is, is this or is this not the, the spiritual antecedent to Young Guns? I think that's a, uh, yeah, sure. That, that, that makes sense to me. Transitioning from Ferris Bueller's to this is actually kind of awesome because you had those John Hughes Brat Pack kind of movies, and now it's like, what if the Brat Pack started killing people? And they started exploring that <laughs> that theme, <laughs> and so it, and so it started as the Lost Boys, and then you had Young Guns, then you had Red Dawn, and you had like these right. things like, well, like Red Dawn was older. Red Dawn, Red Dawn was like eighty four. Yeah, but they started exploring that vein though of like, you know what? Yeah, what if they start leaving a body count? Let's just see how much we love the men. And the answer is we love them more, you know? So. Right. They're like, well, let's Lord get House. back to the outsiders. Yeah. <laughs> Rumblefish. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you know, Chris, something you mentioned about this that always struck me about this particular soundtrack, but again, as I gave it a, another list and it really came forth, which is that, you know, this is such a strange album. It's so weird because, like, so many of the songs are – they're these weird throwaways or they're songs that like the artists who are in them probably never would have done ordinarily, like Roger Daltrey covering, uh, doing an Elton John arrangement. Right. Right. It's just such an odd 
team up. Like a soundtrack was kind of the place where you found artists doing those things, right? Where they would a cover of a song that normally wouldn't get covered, you know, like the way yes. Echo and the Bunnymen covered The Doors. That was produced by Ray Manzarek, by the way, of The Doors, which which might explain why that version is so, so different good. yet still feels so true. There's an experimental vibe to this soundtrack. I, I so salute. It's got songs that are just from all these. Where the hell else were we ever going to hear a breakout Tim Capello song? It, it, spoiler, nowhere, okay? <laughs> nowhere. Ever. We, we were never, <laughs> not ever, okay? <laughs> Even the NXS collaborations on that. The guy there who's singing on those, I don't know who he is. I never saw him again. Jimmy Barnes. Yeah. Yeah, Jimmy Barnes. And, <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Barnes. And, and getting back to, to Tim Capello, by the way, I still believe is actually, I thought that was his song. That's that's a, a cover by some group called The Call. Now, have I heard the original? No. Do I want to? No. Will I ever find it? No. I'm not even going to look for it, okay? Because why take that away from Sexy Sax Man? That, that's not my right, okay? I'm not going to I'm not gonna do that. He owns that now. <laughs> like you mentioned, a lot of these guys, they kind of came and went. Like Mummy Calls, which is at the end of the album. Right. Like, they vanished, right? Never heard of them. But it's a good tune. But Lou Graham, I don't think he had a significant solo career. I mean, we know him from Foreigner, but we don't know really know him from from. from uh, he did some stuff. Yeah, he, he did, he did it, something yeah. on Saint Elmo's Fire, as a matter of fact. There was like these great songs, but the people who did them kind of faded away a little bit, you know. And it was, it's just a very strange album about a very strange movie. But I, we had that on heavy rotation in my car in high school. No I mean, doubt. Like, hell yeah! I mean, that was like in the <laughs> tape deck for a long old time. <laughs> the, the idea that the soundtracks are places for people to experiment my personal favorite example of that is uh on the lords of dogtown soundtrack a skater movie where That's a great skater movie uh radiohead and sparkle horse cover wish you were here by pink floyd and it's my favorite song ever and, and i think the cover might be better mm. i mean so yeah Exactly. It's, <laughs> so they, you know, it's the soundtracks do provide amazing moments sometimes. They, they really, really do. And that culture of um, experimentation gave us the Judgment Night soundtrack too. So don't get too high, <laughs> dude. I was just thinking about Judgment Night. I'm like, I'm not gonna bring it up, but man, I think if I had to say something, I'd bring up Judgment Night. Um, which, 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 you know, I, I was reading about that. Somebody's like, you know, we have that one to thank for the whole rock rap hybrid. But you know what? Okay, fine. We had to suffer through Limp Biscuit. I get it. But you know what? That was a cool album, and they did some cool things. They brought together bands that normally wouldn't come together, and I'm glad they did. Some of those songs are banging, okay? Um, Faith No More and Booyah Tribes and Other Body Murdered is my go-to, like, let's get angry kind of tune. Like, if I ever, like, I got to go, like... There's no Rage Against the Machine without them. There's a movie a couple of years ago with uh, Robert Downey Jr. called The Judge with Robert Duvall. And I already saw it. It was, it was fine. It was Robert... You know, Downey Jr. doing his thing. He's playing now. He's Tony Stark and everything. But like, there's a the, the closing credits song is Willie Nelson doing the Scientist by Coldplay, and it's it's amazing. That's lovely. Yeah, oh, I it's love amazing. it. It is a thousand times better than the Coldplay version. I, I well, look, I worship go, Willie Nelson. I do. Go and listen to Willie Nelson doing the Scientist by Coldplay, and it will break your heart. <laughs> I am bringing that up on Google right now. That sounds like one of those double features. Like I should play that and then listen to uh, Johnny Cash doing Hurt, and then I'll just go and cry for the whole rest of the night, and that'll be that'll be it for me. It is it is absolutely. If, if we were if we hadn't already been married for ten years, that would have been our wedding. Song. <laughs> exactly. So, um, cool. Well, look, I, um, I know we haven't gotten to Tom yet, and Tom, you've been a little quiet tonight, but I know you've got a great one to talk about. So why don't you why don't you drop it on us? I had a really hard time, it, like picking a soundtrack because like. A really good soundtrack has to create a really good vibe for a movie. When you start looking at all like the great soundtracks, and then you start skating into what we were talking about before, into scores, and you know, like, mm -hmm. all right, well, we have to get something that was you know curated for the movie. You could you know go like Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that, but you know, it, it's too new and it's been done before. And I think one of the things that did it before was the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. And I mean, this is like my moment of truth, not because it's just so tied in with, you know, my, my generation, but, you know, it really established a great vibe for Pulp Fiction, which, you know, L.A. Uh, crime story, you know, noir, Quentin Tarantino, everybody knows this film. I won't get into it too deeply, but the soundtrack, I think, was just like a defining thing. Tarantino worked on it. He produced it. And he wanted it to basically be like a mixtape. And uh, thus you have, you know, like 
little bits of the dialogue interspersed between the songs. Mm-hmm. A couple of years after I had added Pulp Fiction soundtrack to my collection and it had gone on heavy rotation in my apartment, the soundtrack did, I think, a couple of great things. Like if you look at like the track list and you start going down and you take the dialogue out and stuff like that, the songs on this soundtrack do one of two things. They either, number one, establish like the time of the movie, like when it's happening, like, right. So, you know, Al Green and yeah. all that, the, the uh, Cool in the Gang track, like that, that puts it in the 70s. All the other songs, for the most part, they sort of establish this vibe. And it's that California Fender Stratocaster, deep spring reverb kind of sound like really just winds its way through almost every other track on that soundtrack. And, you know, you get like those surf rock tunes and stuff like that. You get, you know, Miserlou, you get Surf Rider and then, you know, like the lively ones. You get all that. So there's five tracks like that on the album. You know, if you really listen closely to a lot of the other tracks, it's that clean, you know, Fender sound to it from California during that Mm. surf rock era. And I think Tarantino did a masterful job of pulling together a lot of tunes with that sound to establish the vibe of this movie. And I I just think that it goes so well with the movie. He was able to just like show his ability to curate these tracks. To me, it like gave sort of a rise to that whole thing, you know, that that went on with like Guardians of the Galaxy. Like we're going to pick some cool tunes. They're going to be like eclectic and they're going to be a little bit all over the place, but they're going to very much establish a vibe for the film. I think Tarantino was just a master at that. And, and, yeah. and I loved what this did for the movie. It's incredibly listenable. I mean, it, 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 oh, you yeah. can, I mean, there's not, there's no, nothing where you're like, I ask him, Dusty Springfield's Son of a Preach Man is one of my favorite songs. Like it is, it is such a, <laughs> um, a masterpiece of music, right? Like, I mean, it's so wonderful. That's going to a lot of my own mixtapes. Yeah, it, it's a yeah. wonderful it's, song. It's just it's so a good. wonderful song. I can still do all the lyrics to Teenage Wedding. I mean, like, there's, there's stuff, and we, we listened to this in college forever. And I was in, I got to experience this in college. So you imagine a bunch of guys sitting around, you know, people sitting around listening to this uh, in your dorm room, right? I, I love how, like, now forever I have, you know, like, the, the dialogue intertwined with the songs. So, like, I'm expecting to hear, you know, Bullwinkle Part 2, like, right at Zed's dead, dead, baby. Zed's dead. Like, oh, you know. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, Tom, with the vibiness. Yes. It, it does set a tone for the movie, although it has an, an intentional effect in unsettling it in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. because this is like 60s music and what appears to be an 80s or maybe 90s setting based on, you know, the cars you see. One of Tarantino's superpowers is to find things that pop culture has discarded or forgotten and to pick them up dust them off, shine them up again, and go, uh, hey, idiots, this is cool. You guys were all just too dumb, and you forgot about it. The 1970s are this much maligned decade, pop culture, music, films, TV, all, all of it. But like the 80s, <laughs> in a large, large measure, the 80s were a rejection of the 70s, of the polyamorous yeah. artificial nature. Oh, yeah. Of it. Yeah. But now, like what, one of the things that Pulp Fiction and the soundtrack did was go back to the 70s and go, no, 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 there's some cool stuff from the 70s. Oh, Al Green yeah. was cool. Like this stuff is, yeah. you know what I mean? This is legit yes. stuff. And Guardians pulls almost exclusively from the 70s and early 80s. But like the exclusive, like yeah. it's 70s stuff. You're, you're, you're not going to yeah. like Brandy. You're talking about, I mean, you yeah. know, like when, uh, this stuff is like the stuff that we used to listen to. My parents would listen to on oldie stations when mm-hmm. I was a kid. And I'd be like, what are you doing? But you listen to it now and you're like, this, this stuff is, is legit. Guys, yeah, like, this well, was music. The thing is, you just know this with Tarantino. It's not like he rediscovered these songs. Like he always loved these songs, right? He just never yeah. stopped loving them. And he he loved these are his favorite. Yeah, and he loved them so much he didn't care what tide of pop culture was going to deem is or is not cool. He's like, he doesn't care. He loved them. He believed them. He was gonna make them, he was gonna incorporate them into his work. And so, and there's a, a fearlessness about that that I really have always appreciated. I think it's really kind of cool. Some of these selections have worked so well that they've kind of broken out of the soundtrack itself. They're like like Miserly, for example. It starts the movie and it starts the soundtrack like a car crash. I mean, like, yeah. You get the pumpkin and honey nope. bunny, you know, uh, little, you know, dialogue thing going there, which is like, boom, it's a robbery. And then in comes Dick Dale, you know, with the guitar riff. You're exactly. Like, oh my God. It's like, what is, <laughs> it is that? <laughs> what is that? So, 
there are two other songs in this soundtrack that really have a massive impact on me. One is If Love is a Red Dress, Hang Me in Rags by Maria McKee. And the reason why that song so knocks me out is it's a phenomenal song. She is just a heck of a singer. I didn't know who she was before the soundtrack. I really haven't followed her since. So I don't know what else she's doing. I hope she's having a long and very fruitful musical career because she's supremely talented. But that song was recorded in 1993. So that's the one song in this album that he didn't go back in time to pick up. It's of the vibe, and it so fits that that song being there tells him that Tarantino, he knows he could have picked from anywhere. He picked songs of a certain vibe. And the songs of the vibe he was looking for were largely from a certain time. But he is so well-studied and so well-versed in the music that he could pick something. He knew that there was a gem waiting for him in 1993 as well. To me, it speaks to the credibility of this list. You can see how much work he puts into it, which I thought was amazing. But, you know, I got to tell you, there's a dark side to this one because, um, lest we forget, there is a particularly tough-to-watch scene in Pulp Fiction involving... Involving a guy in a, in a leather suit and a pawn shop <laughs> and a basement into which no one should ever venture and a, an act of karmic retribution, which is really deeply hard to watch. Uh, but that scene is set to the song Comanche. I can't hear Comanche now and not think of that scene. And it's not a pleasant connection. It's kind of like I can't hear Stuck in the Middle with You and not think about the ear-cutting scene from Reservoir Dogs. Right. It's, it's like, great song, but <laughs> there's now this weight attached to it because the soundtrack works so well. And it's like, this is one of those cases where a soundtrack can actually damage the source material, I think, in a little bit, even though it, it elevates it and yet stains it. <laughs> and uh, like Banjos and Deliverance. Yeah, like right. doing Banjos. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's such a deep association with something that's not great, even though the skill... <laughs> The skill involved is the curation is top notch. The the artistry involved is supreme, but it leaves this unfortunate after effect in some of the source material. And this is one of the few soundtracks in which that actually happens, only because it works so well. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's no question. I mean, well, you know, then then you have the you know the bring out the gimp uh, <laughs> you know, that leads into it. Like I can't hear it without that now. You know, so yeah, I hear you. <laughs> well, you just have to wake him up then, won't you? He's drumming his head. <laughs> I can remember my first wife and I used to um, competitively ballroom dance and we'd go down to Wonderland in Revere around Boston and we would do these swing dance competitions. And it became a thing that at the beginning, and this was like, we're talking 95, 96, 97, every single time she would look at me and say, I want to dance, I want to win, and I want that trophy. And, and it was like, you know, it's such a specific Pulp Fiction callback. And, we never did get to start with Jack Rabbit. You know, I mean, we never we never did catch that song. We were always hoping like this is the time we'll leave with something. Yeah, like right. That. Yeah, just very much a product of of its time, and yet utterly timeless because of the music that it yeah. put into it. As you said, this yeah. could be 1975, it could be 1995, or anything yeah. in between. It surfs, unintended, yeah. amongst that entire two decade stretch, and it's it's untethered. From any specific time. I contend, and I'm just convinced it's the reason why it works so well, no matter what age it's at, is because Tarantino doesn't just understand these songs. He understands every other song that's ever come after it and how these <laughs> fit against it and don't fit against it. And how you can, which, which of these songs you can pick up that would still have a connection in some perpendicular social thread 25 years later, he can see the connections that we can't see. That That's part of his musical brilliance is he can see how these things connect He's making musical compounds out of things the rest of us cannot possibly comprehend. And there's a real virtuosity in how he does that. And the, his curation skills, he, he gets so much credit as a director because he's a fine director. But honestly, as a musical curator, the man is just intensely good. He sets a coke-sniffing scene to Neil Diamond. Yeah. <laughs> and it is perfect. It is. It is. Well, Bull, Bullwinkle 2 is practically an advertisement for shooting heroin. I mean, you watch that seed and that music is like i know heroin's the devil i know it'll kill you i know it ruins lives everywhere seems all right seems okay here seems okay (laughs) maybe maybe this is the good heroin i never hear about you know (laughs) like it but that's the music the music of that scene does that it casts this magical spell like how am i how am how am i cameron fry somehow looking at a heroin scene and thinking this is kind of cool that's the dark spell he cat he, he weaves and that's just pure skill and display and it's really it's really fun to, to to behold it listen to girl you're you'll be a woman soon uh 
and don't be transported to Uma Thurman in dark hair. Yeah. Don't be transported to like. Sorry, no get, can do. Right? It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, it can't happen. Urge oh. overkill cover, and it's still got that same yeah. guitar in it. It's got that same guitar. Right. That driving, that driving right. bass to it, right? That like, yeah. that, just that throbbing bass line to it. And it's just, yeah. you can't escape it. And it's, it's, it's beautifully done. It yeah. really is. And, and from start to finish, it's like when I, when I talked about the Blues Brothers at the beginning. The entire film is a story, and the soundtrack tells that story whether you've seen that movie or not. Yeah. And it's it's unbelievable. Well, Tom, I'm so glad you picked Pulp Fiction because I got to tell you, when we were discussing this topic and talking about what what you know what might me might me you know select and i actually had to work on it a little bit i'm like what 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 do i really want to pick and i remember thinking you know what man like if nobody else picks pulp fiction i'm gonna have to because it just it's just it's so good it landed like such a meteor on my musical listening career it's like i would be remiss if if somebody else didn't talk about it, i am beholden to because it's just so good and it's so impactful and it's like it stands in for so much of what other soundtracks kind of aspire to do to the listener and and never quite live up to it's it's really i mean i know we tend to focus on what is our favorite stuff. We make this, we, the things we talk about is very subjective, right? What matters to me, but boy, I'll tell you what, man, I, the, I'm not a big fan of necessarily going, this is the best, but I will, I'll do a couple innings to defend Pulp Fiction as perhaps the best motion picture soundtrack ever made. Um, just for what it does to the movie, what it does outside of the movie, what it took to make it. It's just a diamond. I love it. I love it so much. It's very, very good. It's true. So glad you picked it. Now, Bill, I, I, I just want to interject yeah. bef before you proceed with any final thoughts that when we made the decision to talk about soundtracks, we talked about definitions. Yeah, sure. And, you know, we distinguish scores from them, not because they're orchestral, but because scores are written for the movie. Yeah. So we, we had to exclude a lot of things like a purple rain <laughs> yeah which is which is titanic i mean i mean i would put purple rain and pulp fiction in the in in the ring and just go let them fight <laughs> finish him <laughs> exactly <laughs> no one get involved it's between them yeah no it's purple rain it's pretty freaking fantastic mm. really is. there's there's a lot there's a lot out there i mean you know there's oh yeah you know there's a lot we didn't talk about you could go through we did, we did talk about the big chill we did talk about uh, you know, The Graduate, and we talk about Dirty Dancing, we can talk about, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot out there that would, would love to get in the ring with these guys. Well, I'm not interested in talking about Dirty Dancing, Joe. <laughs> well, you know, then that's your fault, Somebody because it's pretty awesome. Corner, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that actually brings me to my final thought, honestly, because, I mean, there are so many other incredible soundtracks out there that we couldn't get into tonight, and honestly, I think any one of us could spend just 10 minutes listing so many of them all by name, right? There's There are just so many great ones out there, and I think the cool thing about a lot of these is how a lot of them became sort of the killer playlists for an age when mixtapes were no small endeavor to, to assemble and put together. And I often think about how, how popular music itself has evolved radically in the last 20 years or so, at least, at least in the West, where it's really shifted in large part from something we consume by album to something we consume by individual component. I mean, people have always bought singles, have always been into singles, but I mean, you know, the musical economy became very driven about the single for, for a long period of time. And I think as that happened, you know, playlist curation has become kind of a survival skill for those who are trying to figure out what they like in a world that's producing more amazing content in larger quantities and faster than ever before. You know, for a Gen X kid like me, collecting soundtracks was a great way to open a window into a much bigger musical world than the one I currently inhabited. And now, years later, it almost feels like the soundtrack, like as a form of entertainment, it has been my basic training introduction, how to curate my way through an impossibly rich world of music and decide what's listening to. Um, I probably could have figured that out without soundtracks to guide me, but I very much doubt it would have been half as much fun. So that's the, that's the show for tonight. Guys, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for sharing your soundtrack thoughts with me. And uh, we will see you all here again next time on Moments of Truth. Take care now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty 
and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.